This is episode 400 of the AWS podcast, released on October 20th, 2020. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Lesher here with you. Great to have you back and we are talking well architected as part of our series and I'm joined by a very special guest. I'm joined by Ben Potter who is an old colleague of mine and Ben is actually the global security leader for the AWS Well Architected Framework and he is responsible for researching and sharing best practices in security with our customers. Now Ben works with customers to help them with their cloud security journey and is also part of a special incident response team. Ben is also an ambassador for uh, an initiative I think is tremendous, which is called No More Ransom, helping fight cybercrime across the globe. He is a cybercrime fighter. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks, Simon. Great to be here. Good to have you on here. Now, let's let's talk briefly about um, about this No More Ransom and how you got to that point. You know, security is a, a very broad domain, but it sounds like you've focused in on some pretty interesting areas. Yeah, like I guess. You know, my history is I just want to get out there and help people, right? And lots of people, lots of organizations need a lot of help around cybersecurity or cyber, as we should call it. We should drop the security off of that one. Um, how it actually came about, I was working in professional services for AWS a few years ago. And this email came out. This email was like, help everyone. If anyone's got any time over the weekend, can you quickly jump on a call and help this really important customer that we've got? I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. So I replied to the email and sure enough, I was on the phone uh, within hours to Raj Samani, who's uh, at the time was uh, basically the chief scientist and CTO at Intel Security, which is now McAfee. And I basically found myself over the weekend creating, standing up this entire web environment, this entire website for the No More Ransom initiative, which the week after was actually launched globally. So uh, it just just went past our four-year anniversary. And I can't remember the exact stats, but it's it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars saved from many people around the world paying ransoms. So... Yeah, it's really, really and so cool the intention issue. is to is to not is to not have people have to pay the ransom to get their data back. That's right. So that we're not encouraging more ransom. Exactly. So the website actually shares decryption keys and free advice. The decryption keys are also free, of course, that different organizations around the world find these decryption keys, uh, whether they're on servers that have been compromised by law enforcement or um uh, law enforcement also does raids on different, you know, data centers and different individuals that they trace back who runs these uh, crime syndicates, gets the decryption keys, puts them up on the website so anyone around the world can go and download them and decrypt their data if it's been encrypted with certain strains of uh, ransomware. Sounds like a very worthy activity. Now, let's talk about the security pillar because security should be job zero for pretty much everyone. I mean, security is built, needs to be built into everything we do. So what are the focus areas in the well-architected security pillar? Yeah, so the focus areas, we start with identity and access management. So this includes identities, which are the people and components that have access inside your AWS workloads, and permissions, which is controlling what they have access to. So then we move on to detection. We actually used to call this one detective controls, but we've dropped the controls and just simply call it detection now. And this is about logs, metrics, and other insights. 
uh, determining if there is any misconfigurations, uh, different threats, or unexpected behavior. Then we move on to infrastructure protection. So this is covering both networking and compute to secure your infrastructure. And this includes both EC2 workloads, containers, and also serverless. So we want to make sure you're thinking about all those three different types of workloads. And next is data protection. This includes data classification, then the protection of the data, such as encryption in transit and at rest. And then finally is instant response. So this is around focusing on preparation and containment of a security related incident. So the five areas. So there's a whole a whole sort of set of areas there. And I, th I think one of the, the wondrous things about security is uh, there's a lot there and it can be a little bit daunting uh, when, when you're sort of sitting back as a customer going, well, where do I start? So when you're talking with customers, what are, what are the first, you know, let's talk about first things first. What are the first things that people should think about when they're thinking about creating a secure environment to operate in? Yeah. If I, if I was, if you were asking for a genie in the bottle, you know, um, you've got three wishes. I'd ask for an unlimited number of wishes. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's that old but hack. Yeah. But if we had to pick three, then I'd say getting your AWS account structure worked out first. So using tools like uh, AWS organizations to create the accounts that separate different workloads into different stages like development and production, and also using organizations or even control tower to apply guardrails at the account level. So it's really important to get that account structure in place. Uh, if you haven't already, it's quite easy to go back and do it using both control tower and organizations. Uh, second up, my second wish <laughs> is that you centralize uh, all the identities that you use for your AWS environment. So single sign-on uh, or federation with Identity and Access Management Service, yeah, if you have an existing identity provider, can give you like that single source of truth for the identities. And it also makes it easier, especially using SSO, to get those temporary credentials if you're using the command line interface. I see many customers still using access and secret keys, which is definitely not a best practice. You should be using temporary credentials that you get from uh, SSO or the uh, security token service there. And my third wish is you need some sort of detection, right? So by just simply turning on guard duty, it gives you uh, threat detection by continuously monitoring all these different data sources. And of course, there's a lot more that you should do, but they're my three wishes for what you should do first. And a big plus one on guard duty, I think it's it's one of the most, um, I think, revolutionary ways to view your your landscape because it's constantly looking for the unusual. And and it's often the unusual that catches us by surprise because it's unusual. We weren't prepared for it. And um, some of the findings you get out of guard duty are fascinating. I think I've told the story before where I was flying on an airplane and doing the the classic developer thing of doing some work whilst I was flying because, you know, internet in the sky, why wouldn't you? And uh, and I got a guard duty notification saying, I've never seen you do this from the sky before. <laughs> What's going on here? You know, I thought, wow, this really works. I actually got the exact same one. I had it come through. <laughs> I had it come through. I had an email set up. Um, and I find I, I barely get any emails from my all my different personal and work accounts. I barely get any guard duty alerts. And I had this one pop up through on a plane at 40,000 feet or whatever it was. And I was like, what? What's going on? 
I was like, oh, hang on, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I've been hacked. Oh, it's me. <laughs> yeah. So it's really cool. Like you just don't get those false alerts, um, even if you're running like, you know, hundreds of accounts. Exactly. Now, obviously, one of the reasons why we're doing this series is, is uh, the different pillars have had some significant reviews done. Tell us about some of the, the changes that, that happened, um, particularly around identity and access management. It sounds like a, there's been a lot of work that's gone into that. Yeah. So we previously split the best practices into credential management, then access management between humans and machines. We found this caused duplication between the best practices, especially for humans and machines. So when you're doing a well-architected review in the tool and the console, you'd have a separate question for humans and machines, but really they're all the same best practices. So um, we've, then we've now combined them uh, into a single question and a single set of best practices. We also wanted to align our terminology better to the identity and access management service. So we work really closely with the identity team and special shout out if I can to Bridget Johnson, who's a senior software dev manager in our identity team. So we work really closely together to get that terminology uh, correct. So we also took a lot of feedback from the community as well. So community meaning AWS customers, partners, and also in terminal teams. And we actually have a whole set of new best practices for identity and access management. So we have defined permission guardrails for your organization. So this is establishing those common controls to restrict access uh, at the organization level. Another one is reducing permissions continuously. And that's something we do on Amazon internally is over time, we want to continuously reduce those permissions that people have to the point where they only have the permissions that they absolutely need, like least privilege to do their job role. Another one, and sorry, I'm just rambling on here, but we had so many new ones. <laughs> I just want to share them up front. Um, Absolutely. Uh, another key one is establishing an emergency access process. So if you're using uh, federated identities, you're probably not going to have any, if any, um, identity and access management users, but they may be still necessary in a break glass or emergency scenario to get in there and uh, also having those cross-account roles there ready to go. Yeah, I think I think having those in place are, are, are really important. It's, it's interesting because I, I think when people start looking at scoping down their security, there's always at the back of their mind, but but what if I need it? And, and the break glass, a well-managed break glass process helps mitigate that. So you can scope down without worrying that you're going to scope yourself out of a out of a job. Exactly, yeah. And, of course, the break glass, you'd want, you know, real-time monitoring on it. You want, you know, a chat alert, not just an email alert or a simple ticket. So, yeah, having that process in place is key. Uh, also, we've got, sorry, I'm going to keep going <laughs> to new best practices. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. Finally, analyzing public and cross-account access. So this is around continuously monitoring findings that highlight public and cross-account access. So keeping an eye on what you are sharing there. And this isn't just S3 buckets, but it's things like EBS snapshot sharing and uh, VPC peers and things like that. And finally, is sharing resources securely. So governing the consumption of shared resources across accounts um, or within your AWS organization. So plenty of, plenty of things to think about there. Now, there's a new question that I think is really interesting, which is, 
kind of broad, which is how do you securely operate your workload? So why did that question get introduced? Yeah, so we found some of the best practices didn't really fit into an existing area uh, or a particular question. So we made these foundational best practices. The first question, or mapping back to the first question, it ties back with one of the most critical things you should do first. So these are the best practices you need to do first, like uh, the account structure I mentioned before. Uh, we also have threat modeling, so create a threat model. And we also moved the existing best practices around keeping up to date with both security threats and recommendations. And also a couple of new best practices around identifying and validating control objectives, then automating testing and validation of them in a code pipeline. And what about, you know, the, the, we, we talked a bit about some of the, the tightening, tightening, I should say, um, loop between detection and action. And, and you talk about a best practice of implementing actionable security events. I think this is almost a, a breakthrough in the field of security and how, how we need to be in terms of responding to a, a very different threat landscape. Let's, let's dive into that a bit. What do we mean by actionable security events? Yeah, so it was actually a customer that gave us this idea uh, for this particular best practice. You know, we use the analogy where we both got a guard duty alert while we're in an aeroplane <laughs> at 40,000 feet. But, you know, <laughs> we only, like you and I, only manage a small handful of accounts. If you had many accounts, thousands or millions of users um, using your workloads, then you're going to get a lot more alerts, right? So, this is around making an alert, not just going to someone's email box, because I don't know about you, if I get more than a couple of emails from something a day, I'll create a role and I'll never see them again. Um, so it's about making it. <laughs> they're gone. Yeah, exactly. They're gone. <laughs> What's signal versus noise, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, really? yeah. So what we want, we want to encourage you to have, say, like using chat ops. So going into Slack or Chime in real time into the appropriate channel, what the alert is, and also, depending on who is consuming that alert, some information on how they can actually go and investigate it and what they should do. So within that same message, you could also have a link to like a runbook or a playbook for that particular alert, uh, any background information on how it came about. And of course, because it's in the chat in real time in your team, you can quickly reply to it and, and, and say, look, I'm, I'm investigating this. It's ticket number XYZ and you're onto it. It doesn't just get filtered into someone's email role and forgotten about or a ticketing system and forgotten about. Yeah. It also shows you a history of what's, what happened and it's really useful also with some timeline creation after the fact to see, well, how quickly can we respond to something when it's going yeah. on? And I guess, Tied into the response, you know, another concept we talk about is actions at a distance, which I found really interesting because I think, you know, as as, as practitioners, we used to, to diving in and getting hands on when when something has to be addressed or looked at, but you're talking about a very different scenario here. Yeah, so actions at a distance was born from another one of our customers actually, and ties in with our design principle of keeping people away from data, which you'll hear our CISO Steve Schmidt say a lot, and. You know, when people have direct access to data or to a system like SSH or remote desktop to make a change, then, you know, I can easily make a mistake there, right? So we should all be using tools and automation instead of SSH or remote desktop, even if it's through a bastion host. So I'm declaring that bastion hosts are dead. 
<laughs> we should use. That's a big call. Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> um, I love I loved my Bastion host because it was a lot better than access to all hosts. <laughs> just a little bit. But you can still make a mistake by directly you know, running commands on there, right? So we should be using something that we can peer review those commands we use. And of course, this is, this is you can be quite strict in production, but you don't have to be as strict in a development or testing environment, of course, because you still want to get work done. You still want to innovate and, and play around and test stuff. So you can be using something like systems manager, either the automation or the run command features of that service to do these commands for you remotely. And it also helps you scale. So not just doing it on one particular instance in your fleet, but doing it across many. I agree. And I think systems manager has kind of revolutionized that concept in many ways, because you can do it at, at ridiculous levels of scale, but with a lot more reliability than, you know, you, 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 I think we've all been up late at night on a bastion host doing something and we've pressed that button and then gone, that's probably not what I wanted to do or I'm in the wrong server or just done the wrong thing. Yeah, good intentions, not good mechanisms. <laughs> exactly. Now, an- another consideration that, that's always top of mind but has always been challenging for people because I think it has often has had cost implications, performance implications, complexity implications is encryption at rest and in transit when it comes to data. And um, uh, I think uh, Werner has that T-shirt, uh, in, in, dance like no one's watching, encrypt like everyone is, which I think is an absolute <laughs> I love that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what are some of the approaches you've seen to make sure we're encrypting data all the time? Yeah, so one of the best practices we talk about, well, there's actually two. There's enforced encryption of data at rest, and then we have another one in transit. So for EBS volumes, it's simply a tick box now to enable default encryption. Um, the same for S3 buckets using the wizard in the console. It's really easy to tick the box, select your KMS key, then it's all encrypted server-side. Um, also find that using CloudFormation, if you have templates for CloudFormation infrastructure as code, of course, you can actually build in the encryption resources and mechanisms inside those templates and have them as the standard defaults in your organization. And it makes it a lot easier to integrate the key to the workload as well. And also ties hand in hand with performing those actions at a distance. Because using CloudFormation to create your infrastructure for you, um, using known or testing templates. And um, you can, you know, I see it's a good way for new developers to get started as well. So having that secure code base that's pre-canned, ready to run. Uh, makes it easier for them to also see those relationships between the different resources, see how the encryption works, and uh, have a play around. Yeah, we want to we want to be familiar about how how it all works. Now, one one thing I think it's been really interesting is obviously we've got lots of customers deploying serverless, and and I have to admit to being a, a massive serverless fan myself. And one of the appealing things is it it dramatically reduces the the attack surface. You know, you're not worrying so much about uh, patching your operating system and all this stuff because it's sort of quite uh, ephemeral in many ways, but there's a different approach you take to, to vulnerability management for serverless workloads. So, so help us understand where the focus should be in, in this new modality. Yeah, so serverless is more, more focus on your code, right? So securing your code, looking at the dependencies you have, so using dependency checking tools to ter- determine where the libraries in your code uh, links against and also using static code analysis tools to identify common security issues like unchecked function input bounds, uh, fuzzing, that sort of thing. 
So you can actually use Amazon CoGuru for some of these aspects like the input validation and information leaks like logging sensitive information in your code. So we actually have a new best practice that we've expanded from our old patching one, which is now performing vulnerability management. And that takes into consideration the code level and the infrastructure level. Now, I want to jump into, into a topic that, that often gets missed in the early days of, of people operating systems, et cetera, which is, you know, bad things happen and things go bump in the night. And an incident response is, is a thing. And as you mentioned from your story earlier, it, was, it can be a very uh, quick and massive thing. Um, how should customers think about incident response? What's, what's a good mental model to use? Yeah, I think you should be prepared and actually planned. So even if you're a, you know, a couple of person startup, um, start off small and iterate, having something there as a plan, um, not just thinking it's not going to happen to me. And I like to think you can actually start to run pretend events. So like virtual ones, of course, in the current day. Um, so running these simulations or these mini um, pretend events can actually help you learn what you don't have, what you need to do, you know, where to find the logs to dive into a particular um, event, the metrics that you actually need. Am I under DDoS attack? Well, what metrics do I look for? And also who are the export experts, I should say, in your team and across your organization? Like what extra help do you need? And then from that, you can actually start working on plans. And I actually like to tie in guard duty with this. So have a look at the different guard duty findings, maybe pick a couple that could be relevant for your particular use case and workload, and then run them as a simulated event. And I think that it's interesting, you know, when we work through those events, often as technologists, we think about the technology aspect, but there's also a whole communications plan that needs to happen as well. You know, how do we know who are the stakeholders who need to know something's going on? How do we tell people to maybe change their behaviour or heighten their awareness? It's, you know, te- technology is made of people, I often like to say, and uh, it, it means we need to, to, th- to think about those people when an incident is taking place as well. Exactly. Um, many organisations have a social media plan, how they respond to social media, how open they are to a particular cyber incident online. And of course, how they uh, contain that incident also comes into the planning, uh, public relations and media as well. So it's huge. Yeah. Are there, are there any example plans that people can, can look at as a sort of guide? There are actually. So we had a local solution architect create a few and open source them on GitHub. And we can share the link in the comments. I'm sure we'd be able to do. Absolutely. Now, now you mentioned that you're, you're part of an incident response team at AWS. And I know that obviously we can't share specifics, but are there insights or lessons you've learned from, from responding to incidents that you would like to share with others? Yeah, you know what? I, I expected to see like these crazy, crazy kind of, you know, attacks going on and bad things happening. But there's, there's basically none of that. It's really gets down to the basics and that's that. And the basics, we look for open security groups. So that'd probably be one of the most common ones. Um, Unpatched instances. So just patch your stuff. And access and secret keys. (laughs) There's a T-shirt for that too, isn't there? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. And having access and secret keys laying around. Like again, as I said right at the start, uh, don't use access and secret keys unless you really, really, really need to. Um, Use temporary credentials through SSL, your federation provider. So with those three things, 
um, that will save a lot of cases. And what about automation? You know, we talk about incidents and we talk about trying to tighten that loop of response. What are some things you've seen that can work really well in terms of making it quick to respond? Yeah, so the bones of it really depend on what the incident is. So, for example, if it's an access or secret key that's being misused, we can quickly disable that either in the console or API or CLI, uh, attach a deny policy to it, and also revoke any sessions. So when we look at automation for that particular thing, we can look in our uh, CloudTrail logs to see what the user's been up to and also see look for things that that particular user or role has created and dive into that. Uh, in the well-architected labs, we've actually got a lab that uses Jupyter Notebooks to do this uh, investigation for us as well in a semi-automated fashion. And then once you've got the, the basics and, and that flow happening, the next stage is automation. So we could actually use something like GuardGuty or another event source as a trigger to actually run a Lambda or some other bit of code to then automatically block that IAM user in seconds, you know, literally in seconds without waiting for somebody to look at that message in the chat ops and, and respond to it manually. And, and that's the thing with the automation. It doesn't have to be automating everything. Like you said, it can be just some of those common vulnerabilities that pop up from time to time where you know if the, if this if this is happening it should, you know there's never a good reason so you know maybe no. um, allowing RDP access to everyone on a security group you just know that's a that's not going to happen yeah. <laughs> not on my watch uh, so exactly. we'll just uh, remove that rule from a security group when it happens exactly yeah so Ben let's let's get the crystal ball out what do you think is next for for the security pillar so we're looking at adding another level of depth to the actual white paper and the pillar itself. So incorporating some of the content from our old security best practices paper that was released many years ago. So we're looking at deprecating that paper in favor of the well-architected security pillar. You also might have noticed that a number of services in their documentation actually now have a security section. So working to build that out um, with the service teams of doing the heavy work on that and adding service-specific best practices there inside the documentation. And the Identity Access Management Service is a good example of, of that, and they've had that for a couple of years now. Also really enjoy working back from our customers, so really appreciate any feedback you have on this current release or anything that you're doing that could be a new best practice or any feedback on what's not working for you or anything that needs to be clarified. Yeah, we do love to get that that feedback. And as you mentioned, as we were speaking, you know, a lot of these ideas and iterations sort of come from things we've seen that customers have either done or asked for. And that's that's the way we yeah, like it. Absolutely, really love the feedback. Uh, I actually met a little startup uh, in Australia uh, late last year, and they were doing everything through chat ops. Like Ben, we don't have like really any identities as such. We're doing everything through chat ops. You know, we've got identities for getting into Slack, but everything uh, was visible, everything was automated. And I was like, wow, you're like a five-person startup and you've just built this from scratch. Uh, and it actually saved them time. Like they invested a little bit of time up front. They built it all from scratch and it's saving them so much time in the long run. So it's really cool to see a little startup live and breathe uh, our advice and, and do it really well from the start. What's amazing. And you see the leverage it gives them as well in terms of how quickly they can move while being secure. So yeah. uh, you, know, you don't have to trade off speed for security. One can actually help the other. Exactly. 
Ben, thanks so much for coming on board and, uh, and explaining to us what's been happening in the security pillar. No, thanks, Simon. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And we do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at Amazon.com is the place to do that. And until next time, keep on building.